Lesson 12, Drawing the Sail on the Wind of Change. Years ago, our family took a vacation near Lake Michigan. The nearby beachfront had small two-person sailboats you could rent. How hard could it be, I thought. I talked my cousin into joining me, assuring her that I knew how to sail. Thirty minutes later, our sailboat was upside down in the middle of Lake Michigan, and my cousin's never gotten into a boat with me since. It did, it did get me thinking about what makes a sailboat move. Is it the skill of the sailor? Certainly, skill makes some difference, as I learned that day. But no matter how knowledgeable or determined a sailor might be, she needs something else, something she has no control over, the wind. If there is no wind, your boat will not move. At the same time, the wind can be blowing fiercely without your boat moving, or at least not moving in the direction you'd like. You can be stuck, your sail haplessly flapping, or you can be tossed to and fro by the waves. You can even capsize like I did. To move and move in the right direction, certain skills need to be learned and put into practice. Moreover, you'll not be able to enjoy the experience of sailing until those skills have become so internalized you're no longer thinking about them. You practice them so much through training that they've become like second nature. You're not thinking about sailing, you're just sailing. Now, sailing might be unfamiliar to many of us, as it was for me, but I think it's a good metaphor for our life with God. No matter how determined we might be, we can't change our hearts nor move ourselves forward. No amount of grit can help us. We are always dependent on a power outside of us. We need the wind. But as Jesus reminds us, the wind blows where it will. Yet at the same time, we're not passive observers. We can't control the wind but we can catch the wind. And in order to catch it, we have to draw the sail. And in order to draw the sail, certain God-given, time-honored skills need to be learned. Otherwise, even if the wind is blowing fiercely, you can be stuck, tossed to and fro by the waves, or even suffer shipwreck. Now, Let me take up a possible objection that might be troubling some of you. You might be thinking, I thought our salvation is all of grace, completely dependent on God, but you're making it sound like I have to do something. Well, sometimes a desire to express what is true about the grace of God, that there's nothing you can do to make God love you more or less, leads to an assumption that's false, that there's nothing then left for us to do. It's true that our life with God is all of grace. At the same time, God's grace invites us. It even requires our participation. Grace is not opposed to effort, after all. It's opposed to earning. The Bible calls us to rest in Christ, even as it calls us, quote, to strive to enter that rest. An old Oxford preacher captured the tension when he called us, quote, labor to be brought near. And you can hear both sides. Labor is an active command giving us something to do. To be brought near is a passive stance and sounds like the responsibility is all God's. Yes. 
We don't often hear the complexity today of labor to be brought near, but you'll find it assumed historically by the most articulate defenders of grace. John Calvin once wrote, let us therefore labor to feel Christ living in us. Or John Owen added, labor therefore to fill your hearts with the cross of Christ. Jonathan Edwards wrote, we should labor to be continually growing in divine love. Jesus put it most simply, the way is hard that leads to life. Still, for some, this call to labor can sound suspicious. Might our suspicion, though, reveal something about us? Perhaps we're expecting the presence of Christ to be with us each morning in the same way the dew is on the morning grass. We just wake up and there it is. If you're anything like me, no one ever told you that spiritual health requires disciplined training. We must labor to become the men and women Jesus redeemed us to become. There's a wonderful phrase that captures this dynamic. And now, Lord, with your help, I shall become myself. But this becoming calls for training. I can't say too often that we're not training to be loved. We're not training to get in shape so that God will be pleased with us. That's not the gospel. Always we begin again with God's undeserved embrace. That's why Lesson 11 stressed that the soil of change is our being rooted and grounded in Christ. We're going deeper and deeper into God's love. There is such a thing as an extraordinary spiritual experience, like the one we looked at last week that C.S. Lewis described in his letter. But by definition, these spiritual experiences are rare and unrepeatable. If we passively wait for a miraculous experience to fall upon us like the dew falls each morning, then when we don't feel Jesus' presence, we might complain of periods of being dry, and we might be tempted to blame this dryness on someone else, our church, our friends, even on God himself. It's easy to become cynical. I tried that. It doesn't work. But perhaps the reason we are experiencing stagnation or dryness is because we're not laboring to be brought near. No one really ever showed us how to do this. We were told that we needed to read our Bibles, pray, go to church, and maybe for some of us that was initially rewarding, but over time it began to feel more like a duty than a delight. Not to mention, there might be other reasons why you feel dry that are completely out of your control. So what might it look like to rest in Christ while at the same time striving to enter God's rest? The Bible captures this dynamic in one remarkable sentence, Philippians 2, verse 12. The sentence begins, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, which again sounds like we're responsible. But the verse continues, for it is God who works in you, which sounds like God is responsible and we are dependent upon God. Exactly. Not only do the voices of history convey this dual responsibility in our spiritual progress, Jesus describes it too. His word for this dynamic is abide, which even in English captures the double sense. On the one hand, the word suggests resting and staying. 
like a child leaning upon his mother's arms. It's a posture of reliance for care, like branches depend upon a vine, which is exactly the context in which Jesus uses the word, abide in me, as the branch by itself cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Here is a relationship of utter dependency. On the other hand, abide is an action. Here is something you must choose to do. Jesus commands us, abide in me. He commands us to rest in him like a dog is commanded to stay. We must exert ourselves not to become distracted or move away from our master. A friend likes to paraphrase, don't just do something, stand there. Because learning to stand there turns out to be harder for many of us than our tendency to want to do something. You see, abiding in Jesus doesn't come naturally. And yet Jesus makes it clear that the amount of fruit that comes out of our lives will be a direct result of how much or how little we abide in Christ. So how can we learn to abide? Well, that's where this sailing metaphor is so helpful. Life with God is not like a motorboat where we're in control of the power and direction, but neither is it like a raft where we just sit back and are carried along. It's more like sailing. While we can't control the most important thing, the wind that makes us move, that doesn't mean there's nothing left for us to do. We have to draw the sail to catch the wind. We must labor to be brought near. To switch metaphors, we must train to be healthy. For any of you who've ever run a marathon, this makes sense. What if you made up your mind one day, I'd like to run a marathon, but you never made any lifestyle changes. You didn't adjust your diet and you never trained. You would never be able to finish the race, even if you tried really hard. If you want to run the race, you would need to undertake a new lifestyle, a new life of training. And you'd need to arrange your life around certain practices that would enable you to do what you couldn't do by willpower alone. When it comes to running a marathon, you must train, not merely try. Now, this may not sound like much of a difference, but John Ortberg says this is the single most helpful principle regarding spiritual transformation. There is an immense difference between training to do something and trying to do something. Many of us fall into the trap of trying hard to be like Jesus, and we get frustrated. To go back to our sailing metaphor, imagine you saw someone standing up in the middle of her sailboat, blowing as hard as she could on her limp sail, blowing and blowing like a frustrated child with those birthday candles that keep relighting. Then she turns and says, Why won't my sailboat move? I'm blowing as hard as I can. I'm trying so hard. It's so laughably absurd that we'd be moved to pity because everyone knows you can't move a sailboat by blowing on your sail. And yet that's exactly how many of us approach our life with God. We may have tried really hard for months or years, but got frustrated when we weren't moving as far or as fast as we might have liked. Maybe we've given up on the idea that transformation is even possible. We've given in to the cynicism that says, I'll never change. But the Bible, in a myriad of ways, repeats this promise that change is needed and change is possible. And yet, spiritual transformation is not a matter of, training, of trying harder. 
It's not a matter of trying harder, but of training wisely. Train yourself in godliness, Paul urges Timothy. And the word used for train there is the same word where we get our word gymnasium. For more than 2,000 years, spiritual guides from various traditions have emphasized the importance of spiritual exercises for spiritual health. These exercises have been called various names, spiritual disciplines, means of grace, habits of grace. In the last few decades, there's been a surge of interest in this subject, recovering ancient wisdom for modern people. One of the writers spearheading this renewal has been Richard Foster. Here's how he defines spiritual disciplines. God has given us the disciplines of the spiritual life as a means of receiving His grace. The disciplines allow us to place ourselves before God so He can transform us. The insight that becoming spiritually healthy requires training was revolutionary for me. But in hindsight, doesn't it make perfect sense? After all, running a marathon or learning a new instrument, we all know this is hard. So wouldn't you imagine that learning to think, feel, and act like Jesus is at least as demanding? After all, we're not talking about picking up a new hobby. We're talking about the renovation of your heart. So why should we be so surprised that it takes training? Doesn't Jesus himself tell us on the front end that the way of following him is hard? He doesn't try and hide it. But I was in my middle 40s and a pastor for over 15 years before this realization, which seems self-evident to me today, before it hit me with force. And I felt cheated. Why had no one ever told me that I would have to train to be healthy? I'd preach grace so often to myself that I'd somehow lost the truth that grace is not opposed to effort. But the whole topic of spiritual disciplines, it felt threatening. I didn't want to appear legalistic, and the last thing I wanted was a new list of things to feel guilty about not doing. I look back now and realize that no one had ever shown me how to train. Thank God wise teachers helped me reframe what these spiritual disciplines are. They don't change us. They are merely channels. They place us in a position where God can more ordinarily change us. Spiritual disciplines are to life with God what calisthenics are to a game. Once the game starts, you don't get points for how many free throws you can hit in warm-ups. Rather, you practice beforehand. You train so that you can be prepared when the game starts. In the same way, a discipline is any activity I can do by direct effort that will help me do what I cannot do now by direct effort. You might want to listen to that last statement again. Our best science has helped us understand our willpower is like a muscle. That is, willpower gets depleted quickly. This insight confirms what your own experience has already taught you. We can't change by willpower. That's why spiritual disciplines are so important. Disciplines are valuable because they allow us to do what we cannot do by willpower alone. The 12 steps of AA, they tap into this wisdom. The first step is acknowledging that on my own, I can't stop drinking by trying by my own willpower. 
But what I can do is I can arrange my life around certain disciplines, certain practices. Those are the 12 steps. I can enter a life of training for sobriety. In the same way, spiritual disciplines are any activity that help us train to live life as Jesus intended. The goal is not to become a person who is proficient at spiritual disciplines any more than the goal for a basketball player would be to make eight out of ten free throws in practice in the gym. The goal is, through private training, to become the type of person who can do what's required when it counts, when the game is on, that is, when you're actually living in relationship with other people. We want to become people who do the right thing at the right time, in the right way, in the right spirit. We want to become the type of person who knows how to love wisely in each particular moment and respond as Jesus would have us. When to laugh, when to cry, when to embrace, when to challenge. How can I become a person who responds in a wise and loving way? Well, that's what these spiritual disciplines are all about. Please remember where this lesson began, the image of sailing. All these disciplines are doing is putting us in the right place for God to change us. So if you look back over your life and see that over the past five years, you've become just a little bit more patient, a little bit more loving. You may have worked hard to become those things, but we get no credit. The Bible says it is God who works in us. But set your sights lower. Have I become just a little more patient, a little more kind? At the same time, no one accidentally drifts into a life of maturity. You must decide, very much akin to training, training for a marathon, you must decide if you want to become a healthy, mature person. Now, I've seen lists of spiritual disciplines that range in length from nine to over 40 practices. There are different schools of thought on picking the disciplines that fit your temperament, season of life. We'll take up some of those issues later this semester. Today, I'm just making one point. Spiritual maturity is not an accident. It takes deliberate effort. But we're training, not trying. So how do we draw the sail to catch the wind of God's empowering presence so that we can move forward in joy and confidence? Well, that's what the next few lessons will be about. We'll look at a couple of non-negotiable means of drawing the sails. You may remember back in lesson three, we focused on Jesus' call, take my yoke upon you. We mentioned what a strange fact that to tired people, Jesus didn't offer advice or a vacation. He offered a piece of equipment, farm equipment, a yoke. A disciple is a real-life apprentice of Jesus who has taken on Jesus' yoke, his way of life, in order to learn from Jesus how to live. Jesus' yoke is how we train to become like him. He's inviting us to travel through life with him beside us, shouldering our burdens. Dallas Willard called this the secret of the easy yoke. And he said the secret involves living as Jesus lived in the entirety of his life, adopting his lifestyle. Willard points out it's crazy for us to think we could do the things Jesus calls us to do, love our enemies, forgive 70 times 7, 
while continuing to live in our same old ways. If we want to experience the new way of life that Jesus offers, then we have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And that makes sense, right? If you want to become a person who runs well, you have to adopt the lifestyle of a runner, of one who trains, one who adjusts his schedules, diet, priorities. See, a lot of churchgoers say, I want to be different, but we never change our schedule, our priorities, or the way we go about living our lives. And then we get frustrated, tired, and cynical, and of course we do, because we love the promise of, I will give you rest, but we forget what comes before it. Take my yoke upon you. Most likely, no one ever showed us how to take the yoke of Jesus upon us. Especially in certain circles, we lost sight of the fact that the way of Jesus is just that. It's a way of life. It's not just a set of ideas, what we call theology. It's so much more. It's a way of life based on Jesus himself. Doesn't this explain the head-heart disconnect that so many of us experience? My head tells me one thing, my heart tells me another. Why is that? It's because our way of life hasn't changed. We haven't taken on Jesus' yoke. And because the habits of our lives are perfectly designed to produce exactly what they're producing in us, fear, stress, anxiety, and exhaustion, the most restful gift Jesus can give us is his yoke, his new way. His yoke is his way of turning us into healthy, loving people. And yes, we must labor to put it on, but his way gives us so much more rest than the ways we've been laboring under. Compared to our way, his way truly is easy. In conclusion, what we're really talking about is what the old masters called a rule of life. Don't let that word scare you. A rule of life is just a schedule. It's a routine, a set of practices that help create space in our lives for us to be with Jesus, to learn what Jesus did. A rule enables us to become the man or woman we most want to be. The Latin word we translate rule is the same word that was used for trellis. In the same way a vine needs a trellis so that it can grow in the right direction and bear healthy fruit, We need a rule as a support structure to organize our lives around abiding in the vine. What a trellis is to a vine, a rule of life is to our abiding in Christ. Not a rigid to-do list, it's a structure to promote freedom. A vine without a trellis is a wild vine. And if our life without Jesus doesn't have a structure to facilitate health, we too will become rotten, wild vines. Our life with Jesus will wither and die unless we learn how to abide in him. That's what Jesus says. But instead of being bogged down, you can grow up towards light and health. That's what a rule of life is about. It's meant to be life-giving. To say it simply, abiding in Jesus has to make it on your schedule. If you're interested in doing more research on how you might begin to craft a rule of life, You can check out some more details in your liner notes. But friends, that's why we need a trellis, a rule of life, a set of practices to create space to be with Jesus so that we might become like our master. Okay, see you next week.